Keywords in Play. You're listening to Keywords in Play, an interview series about game research supported by Critical Distance and the Digital Games Research Association. As a joint venture, Keywords in Play expands Critical Distance's commitment to innovative writing and research about games, while using a conversational style to bring new and diverse scholarship to a wider audience. My name is Lindsay Grace. I'm the Knight Chair of Interactive Media at the University of Miami, and I'm the Vice President of the Higher Education Video Game Alliance. And could you give an overview of your latest book? The latest book is Love and Electronic Affection, a design primer, and it's a collection of both uh, chapters that I've written and other researchers in the domain of love and affection have written from a rather global perspective. So we try to articulate uh, everything from dynamics in AAA games to independent games, and the authors themselves come from Malta, from Russia, um, from uh, generally a few sections of the world, and we try to provide a perspective globally. Uh, so my first question is, what is love? Or <laughs> um, more like when you're looking at, you're looking for games about love, and like the um, introduction um, says quite rightly that there's a lack of them. When you're looking for games about love, what kind of thing are you looking for? Sure. So I think one of the things that uh, is sort of foundational is this idea that when we're talking about love in games, we're actually talking about the wide array of love. So friendship, romantic love, parental love, filial love. And so part of it is um, there's sort of a couple of ways to do it. And you'll see that, you know, while I wrote four chapters in the book, there are other researchers who contributed and some of them are doing it from a storytelling perspective and they're looking for specific moments. Uh, I tend to, because my game design practice does this as well, look at it from a um, mechanics perspective, meaning that my first place to look is whether or not your goals are uniquely tied to acts of love or affection. So the idea is, you, in my view at least, you can't really have an affection game if your primary goals aren't accomplished through acts of affection. Or you can't have a game in which love is the core focus from a mechanics perspective if love is only one of 17 things that you use to achieve your goals. Mm. Um, how is love used to achieve goals in some of the things that you've looked at? Sure. So beyond, um, and this is actually a lot of what's in the book, is I think initially when people think about these sorts of games, they immediately go to dating sims or romance sims, and they think about games that operationalize love. And one of the things that, uh, in, in selecting the, the chapters that I have, the, the writing of others in particular, is that I was trying to look for a wide array of perspectives on love as well. So I think that um, you know people forget that there's sort of a Western tradition or an Eastern tradition and a set of values that are baked into the games. And I think one of the core concepts here is to encourage people to see more widely how that love can be perceived. So for example, there's a chapter on um, parental responsibility and this sort of uh, situation, uh, this is Karen Trier's, where we've got both obligation and acts of love. So when you're given the responsibility of taking care of a child in a game, for example, 
Uh, it is given it sort of as a responsibility, and it's interesting to see how game designers try to transition that from doing the bare minimum to, say, finish the level, to uh, helping you understand the complexity of love or the nature of love. You can tell one of the things I'm doing is I'm trying not to, to formally define love, uh, as I think it's a, it's a bit of a, a challenge, to say the least. But to get more specifically to your question, one of the things that I, I try to sort of unearth is multiple perspectives of love and multiple perspectives of affection. So, for example, um, and I think it's in chapter two, there's a whole discussion around um, different formal definitions of loves and act, love and acts of love. So one of the easiest and I think um, most palatable for a lot of people is sort of popular psychology around expressing your love uh, and there's sort of love languages. So by this definition, there are five love languages and there are things like acts of service or giving, um, giving gifts or uh, touch. And so the idea is that you can incorporate these sorts of elements to hit a wider understanding of love than what I see often in, in these kinds of games, which is operationalized with gift giving, for example. You earn my affection by giving me 50 coins, which is uh, quite uncomfortable uh, in, a, in a grander scheme. So what drew you to this topic? Uh, a couple of things. I think, uh, you know, one of the core concepts that I think is really important in this uh, in this context is recognizing that we have done a tremendous amount of work in other types of conflict. We've done a lot of work on war. We've done a lot of work on um, combat. And I like this idea that if you look at the the kinds of ways that games can mature, love and affection is a, a space that we haven't done a lot with. So I look at it as a kind of opportunity to, to, to balance the equation, to say we've done a lot with conflicts in war. We do war, um, for lack of a better word, beautifully because we've been doing it so much. But we don't do love beautifully. We do love clunkily. It's, it's really awkward. And I'm trying to encourage a more critical perspective. And I think part of the reason we do it so poorly is because we practiced it so infrequently. And so part of the idea behind this game is to unearth and highlight, that's why it's called a design primer, uh, some of the ways that we've done it well and some of the ways that we've done it poorly to move that practice forward, to say, if we're going to be a mature medium, a medium that deals with complex issues, then we need to uh, develop the practice beyond uh, some of the things we've been doing into more holistic, more um, mature understanding of love and affection. You've mentioned resisting the urge to like have one stable definition of love. And one of the themes of this book is like these ambiguous and abstract concepts and the difficulty of getting at that through a game mechanic. Um, so do you have any thoughts on that topic? So it's interesting. Um, as is, you know, thank you for reading it. Um, one of the things I think is important is that we've got these, um, we've got designers who are exploring different ways to play. And so some have done embodied versions. So you have things like a kiss controller that sits in your mouth and you actually kiss someone while controlling um, an avatar on screen. You've got, uh, you know, my own work like Big Huggin' where you're hugging a bear to help it pass its obstacles. And I think there is um, this really interesting space in the odd computer, human computer interaction area where there are people who are exploring new interfaces that will support it. But uh, realistically, and most of the game focuses on it, or rather most of the book focuses on it, there's a whole lot more we can do in just developing uh, the complexity of the relationships we have with our non-player characters in particular. 
And I think that uh, one of the things that I, I, I thought was sort of like a high point in observation after doing this kind of research for years is that we have a really problematic understanding of consent within games because we uh, have these experiences where a non-player character is just a sort of doll, a dummy. But as we try to mature artificial intelligence and the complexity through narrative, our relationships with these non-player characters, we really need to get a better sense of how our non-player characters can communicate love and affection uh, even things like flirting. So I would argue that in a lot of games that, especially when they're not designed for love and affection, are often centered around non-consensual practices. They're around people just sort of saying, oh, I'm going to flirt with you. And even though this non-player character has no flirting response, I'm just going to do it anyway. Uh, and I think that that you know, can be extremely problematic when we recognize that some people are playing these games in their formative years. They're just starting to understand human-human um, interaction, uh, and so they may be playing with it through human-computer interaction because it's a low-risk environment. Uh, flirting with someone, either a real person or AI in a computer, is slightly safer than doing it in your local high school with all the um, social risk that a high schooler might perceive. <laughs> yeah, I guess one of the things that normally when we think about that kind of games as a place where I've risks become safer. We're thinking about failure becoming safe. Like it's safe to try and climb a treacherous mountain in a game because like your character can die without it affecting you. Absolutely. Do you think that that approach to failure works the same when games um, model things like flirting? Sure. So actually, uh, I think it's in chapter one, there's, uh, there's a little passage that talks about this idea that we are so extremely comfortable with multiple lives in games. How interesting if there would be multiple love lives in games. And we have these opportunities to kind of flirt with whomever and, and realize, that, well, that one didn't work or that one did work. Or, um, I, you know, I, I went down this path in love and didn't go down this path. I'd like to try it again with this other love life. Has this research kind of changed the way that you read games now when you're playing something for the first time? Uh, it, it does and it doesn't. So the argument that I often make around uh, love and affection in games is that I think what's happened, and this is the part that has definitely changed my perception of um, particularly AAA games, but also some indie games, is that I think the medium had been kind of stifled for so long because of its prohibition. The fact that we had prohibitions against pinball and we had prohibitions even in the electromechanical days, that I think one of the things we're missing is it's, it's just an unbalanced equation. Uh, the analogy that I, I write frequently is that it's sort of like we're still stuck in the 1950s panning away from a sex scene and just implying it because the medium has always been so nervous about its prohibition and it never got to mature. So while film was developing all kinds of new uh, uh, sort of literacies in its audience and its ability to understand what's really happening, games kept getting shut down in this domain. And what happens is it still, it still needs to be more clever in what it's doing. Um, and that's why I sort of analogize some of what we're seeing in the, even the, the best um, 
best examples of love and affection are a bit where film was 40 or 50 years ago. And I think it's partly because we just, we haven't been socially allowed to explore these as a design practice in games. We've been told that it's, it's much better to have um, hyper-realistic uh, ragdoll physics than it is to say, wait a minute, this is not a human, this is not a complex human interaction and I want a more complex human interaction. Yeah, definitely. What do you hope to understand better in five years than you do today? Oh, that's a great question. Um, oh, <laughs> there's a lot of things. Uh, I think one of the things I really want to understand is, uh, is how to improve the depth of our relationships to non-player characters in games. I strongly believe in meaningful play and the challenge, I think, for encouraging people to really think critically and provide a kind of mature perspective on games is that we need to do more to make these experiences something closer to being as rich as life. And so we've had this extreme, in my opinion, extreme focus on the aesthetic qualities and we have been extremely forgiving in the experiential. And I think that further uh, examination of love and affection in games and the ways that we even incorporate things like romance and the complexity of relationships, not just in romantic relationships between parents and children and, um, and friendships, we're going to find that we have a whole lot more research to do in that space. And it's not going to be nearly as simple as some people I think have interpreted it, where we, we just translate tropes from other medium and just drop them in. Uh, uh, grocery store romance novels do this, so we'll just drop it in a game. It'll be a brilliant game. Uh, and I think that's really important for us to explore. So over the next five years, I think there's going to be, I think for myself at least, there needs to be much more um, detailed analysis uh, even this book is, is very sort of top level uh, because there, are, there is so much more left to explore. Yeah, one thing that comes out in what you're saying now and that's also, I see a lot of it in the book, is that, that I'm really interested in is this use of we. I'm really curious about who we is for you and like who, who you're writing for and also who you're speaking for. Sure. So the we um, is largely uh, both researchers who are looking at everything from um, romance games and dating sims to affection games, and also the people who to actually design and develop these games. So I did the same thing with my um, my first book, doing uh, doing things with games, social impact through play. I'm trying to reach an audience that is trying to be more critical of the work they do. So I love games like Florence, and I think it's a good start. But I think there's a whole lot more we, we as people who are implementing games and researching games, because I do both, can do. So that we is generally the combination of people who are researching traditionally and people who are researching through design, who are trying to understand the medium or understand best practices more formally by going through the process of actually creating. Could you describe Florence briefly? Sure. So Florence is this charming independent game uh, about the sort of uh, the start of a relationship. And uh, the reason I think it's so interesting is it provides a variety of mechanics. So in a, often in this space, especially with affection games, kissing is reduced to just press a button. And in this game, you have all the sort of awkwardness of the, the first romantic relationship and the activities that you do are quite personal. 
And I, I like it as an example of, of how games can explore intimacy and provide us a different level of intimacy. We're not um, detached from the experience and operationalizing experiences around affection. We're actually sort of living someone's life and going through their awkward moments of spilling their notes and meeting someone that they're romantically interested in, while also combating the pressures of uh, parents enforcing their own values and what a good relationship would be. Uh, and I think it does it. It does it well, and like I said, it does it with a variety of game verbs. And all my design practice and in a lot of the writing I do around sort of designing effectively, I emphasize that, that game verbs are far more varied than we employ. And Florence strikes me as one of those really good examples uh, because it might just be trying to get a good photo, but that photo means something to you because you're capturing a moment in your relationship. And that's a mechanic that we don't see as often. So I find it extremely charming and that it, it's not adverse to making sure that we try a bunch of different things instead of press Y to say, yes, you are interested in this person's whatever. <laughs> Another thing I wanted to ask about um, that really stands out about the work that you do is um, that you combine text-based academic research with design practice. And I know that that's something that's a struggle for a lot of people in some academic institutions. They really have to fight for that and fight for the significance of that. And I wanted to hear more about how they intermingle and balance in the work that you do. Certainly. Another great question. I think one of the things that I should first start with is we actually did a workshop on this challenge uh, about a year ago uh, for FDG, for the Foundations of Digital Games Conference. And a few people had actually published papers. They're available in the ACM Digital Library that outline some of how this space is being navigated. But in terms of how I've uh, sort of handled the, the, that dichotomy, one of the things that I often do personally is I work on a project, create the project, and then do some kind of academic publication about it. The challenge, of course, is that I feel that the game design friendly publications are slightly on the decline. Uh, I think because there aren't, there just aren't enough people to support them, to, to support the peer review, and also, um, I don't know, support the community. So I think that one of the challenges for anyone who's doing that kind of work is trying to find just the right way to frame it so that it is relevant to the reading audience, but informative to the design audience. And I also have to say, this is particularly important for people who are trying to make sure that their career is, is both robust, fulfilling for themselves, and um, it meets the sort of metrics that academic institutions are looking for, like citations. The real challenge there is that people don't cite games the way they cite publications. So it's very hard to get to, to demonstrate in old world metrics uh, efficacy or popularity or effectiveness in um, design practices. And there, I encourage people to do more explicit citation of work. So um, to actually mention the work, make sure that the work is properly cited, because one of the challenges in making games is that they are hard to archive. And so I've tried to do a lot of work around when we when um, I uh, do exhibits or uh, curate exhibits with others, we try to publish some kind of catalog and make that catalog cheap or, or readily available so that the work is not lost in the ether of technological change. 
In a way, just having a paper or multiple papers that accompanies the uh, design project give you a more citable hook that's then easier to navigate within the institution. Absolutely. It's a way of making sure that you are still achieving your goals as a designer while meeting those those expectations or realistically, I I still think they're a bit of a sort of antiquated perspective, but it's the one we've used for so long Uh, and being able to say, well, look, this paper on the game I created has been cited 15 times, therefore it is relevant to others. Uh, and and I've, I've gone on record, I've, I gave a talk at the um, Games for Change Festival on this. I think one of the challenges is that we can create more social impact by providing an exhibition where the world walks in and plays the game than we can writing what could be perceived as an esoteric four-page paper in an ACM format. But the metrics for performance in academia often bias towards that four-page paper that fails to capture the nuance, the interactivity, all the things that really matter and the thing that was designed. Could you tell me a bit more about the Games for Change Festival? Absolutely. So the Games for Change Festival uh, is, I think it's going on 15 years or so, an event that focuses annually. It's held in New York this year. It was actually a virtual conference. And its focus is social impact games very widely. So it includes researchers both in the professional space as well as the academic space. So people who are practicing for uh, organizations like PBS who are looking at educational games, they're looking at political games. Uh, We gave a talk this year on news games. It's a really nice accessible experience for someone who's trying to understand more broadly how both academic research and the professional practice meet. And that's one of the places I think that anyone who's interested in social impact should be engaging in. And they do a great job. They actually give their videos for free as few as four weeks after the event and sometimes as late as two or three months after. That's cool. And that kind of starts to give me a sense of how how you create a meeting point between academia and industry as well. What challenges have you faced in doing that or what, what joys have you found in doing that as well? Well, it's always challenges and joys, right? That's generally how it works. Um, I think the, the joy of meeting people in the middle is that when you're coming from an academic perspective, you've got this real depth. And what meeting people who have more of a short-term goal, like I would like to engage people in my idea for the next three weeks, is that it reminds you to keep it pertinent and it reminds you to put, um, to, to sort of put your ideas on the road and let them run. So what I've done for years in my own practice is I've run a, a game studio of sorts alongside the professional practice and it keeps me not only from um, becoming too esoteric but it keeps me grounded as a designer in the reality of implementation so i i strongly suggest for this for anyone who's doing any version of design research that you do both that you are keeping your eye on a long-term benefit because the challenge is if you are doing important interesting work it should be relevant 10 15 30 years down the road So you have to have that long-term trajectory, but at the same time, you have to ask yourself, what can people do with this now? Am I starting from a place that people understand? So it encourages you, a meeting in those spaces encourages you to make the work accessible, which I think is very important. Uh, And it also encourages you to understand the realities of implementation and design practices 
so that you don't end up sort of spinning off into a space that no one else can understand. Um, it also occurs to me that I should probably ask you to explain ACM format for our listeners who are not from that world. Absolutely. So um, ACM format is uh, Association of Computing Machinery, and in short, it's one of the more popular spaces for producing technological research. So while a lot of people in computer science have relied on it as one of the core international publication venues for the proceedings of a conference or a journal, what it does is it's a really good at maintaining the research 30, 50 years in the future. So as people are trying to determine what's a good venue for them to publish, the nice thing is uh, people who do human-computer interaction, people who do computer science research uh, will look at the ACM digital library to understand whether or not someone has already explored a space. And that's in contrast to a lot of the stuff that we do in game studies. And so I try to do both because it provides, again, that bridge between uh, formats and concepts. Otherwise, what I've noticed is that people will go um, very far on a path and not realize that the game studies folks have been doing it for a long time or vice versa. Right. Oh, I see. So that's the contrast with game studies, that like there's these two different fields that are kind of running in parallel and you need to kind of send a kind of beacon to the other side. Yes, exactly. You're sending a signal to the other side and saying, so for example, with my critical gameplay work, I published it in both spaces because I want the folks who may have more of a humanities focus to understand and to frame it in the terms that they recognize as valuable. And then I do the ACM work, the Association of Computer Machinery work, as a way to talk about the technical implementation and the social interplay with that. Otherwise, uh, I think it's, it's not very different than, say, being a Netflix watcher or an Amazon Prime video watcher. Sometimes you have no sense for what's happening in the other space because you, there's so much content in the other. One thing that comes out when, when I was looking back at the works that you've done in your design practice and in the, in the works that you refer to in your chapters in this book um, is the use of reversals. So in this book, you talk about Pong and uh, the game You Made Charity. And there's, there's other examples as well, like the game Wait, where it's like a reversal of the common open world format where you find more of the world and you see more of the world by exploring it um, with those kind of connotations that go back to a kind of history of colonial exploration. And you reversed that and made a game where you have to stay still and contemplative to see the world properly. So I find this use of reversals really interesting. And yeah, I was wondering if you could describe charity for us and also talk about the efficacy of reversal as a design strategy. Certainly. So charity was actually one of the first games I did for the critical gameplay practice more than a decade ago. And the whole concept behind critical gameplay uh, will help you understand why charity was the first. Essentially, what I was trying to do is help people understand that they have a tremendous number of assumptions about how the world of games should operate that are not particularly inclusive of a wider understanding of the world itself. So it was wonderful that you talked about, say, this notion of exploration and colonialism as a theme that appears because there are loads of these themes that appear in games and we're not critical of them. So critical gameplay was a way of producing, um, implementing, 
alternative games that reminded people to play or the possibility of playing differently. So in charity, for example, what I was trying to do is say, let's go back to the beginning. Let's go back to one of the fundamental gameplay mechanics that everybody seems to know, Pong. And let's see if there is another way to create a Pong experience that is equally satisfying, but isn't competitive because Pong is about besting your player. And ultimately, it was an extremely simple game I implemented in processing. And what it did was it was trying to encourage people to recognize that throw-catch volleyball can be equally as satisfying as competitive volleyball. Just trying to get the ball to the other person can be interesting and, and fun. And what you'll see is that uh, a lot of my work in the design space is about encouraging people to be critical of their assumptions about what is an engaging experience so that they can see a much wider world of possibility. So I gave a talk at Games for Change years ago about uh, games, game verbs for change, where I was encouraging people to see that the verbs that we use right now are still very limited. Uh, and we were doing this even in the social impact space. So we were doing things like saying, oh, if I want to help people understand why um, it's so hard to collect water in sub-Saharan Africa, I'm going to have them run and jump. And realistically, the running and the jumping aren't necessarily the obstacle in that environment. It may have to do with political systems. It may have to do with um, uh, access issues that aren't part of our gameplay, but should be. So most of critical gameplay and these, the, what you're sort of describing as reversals are actually about highlighting our, what could be arguably incorrect assumptions about the problem. The best way to think about it is that when I, um, and I did this in my other book, um, Doing Things with Games, Social Impact Through Play, I emphasize that game designers create problems and solutions. So what we have to do as good game designers, particularly in places where we're trying to offer more progressive gameplay, more interesting gameplay than we've seen before, is we need to couple the problems and solutions with verbs that make sense. A really good example of that is one of my um, older critical gameplay games, Healer, is really about me being critical of the convention of games like 1942, games where you are recreating World War II and the atrocities of World War II by shooting down planes and killing people. And in my version of the game, the game is called Healer, what you're doing is instead of recreating the events of the Nanjing Massacre, this horrible atrocity that occurred during World War II between Japan and China, you're undoing it. Everyone's already dead and you get the cathartic experience of trying to save as many people by literally pulling bullets out of them um, as you move. But it still uses the other familiar mechanics of a game like 1942. It's still a scroller. You can't save everyone, but you're really trying to undo it. So while they, they kind of work as reversals, the main goal, and you'll see it in some of the other critical gameplay games, is not reversing our understanding, but creating a kind of exclamation point where a lot of these games are very hard to play if you come in with standard game player um, uh, solution finding. So in Healer, for example, I made a game that is hard for someone who's used to running and gunning. I made a game where you have to slow down, you have to get used to a entirely different pace. And the idea is, of course, to remind us that we could use some slowing down. Yeah, it's so interesting to hear this kind of temporality coming back over and over again, that like waiting and going slowly and yeah, how that connects to emotional goals like love and affection, the kind of temporality of feeling. Do you have any thoughts about 
how this work that you've been doing for so many years, does its meaning shift or intensify in the present conditions of social distancing? So it's interesting. Um, I have kind of two feelings about it, and they are at opposite ends of a spectrum. So the first is, hey, great, if we can give people some medium that's going to increase their sense of um, empathy, their love and affection through practice, uh, then that may help us in the midst of a pandemic when we're feeling disconnected. Uh, and I, I want to say that on the positive end, but at the other side, there are all kinds of contradictions in that assumption. So for example, if we're going to argue that violent games don't make violent people, we're gonna have a hard time arguing that love and affection games are, are or aren't going to make people more loving and affectionate. And the big hugging game that I created, the game where you hug a, a giant teddy bear to help him pass his obstacles, was originally designed as a counterpoint to the violence claim. I was frustrated with a number of people who kept telling me that every time they know someone who plays a first-person shooter, they somehow become a more violent person. And I said, great, what if I made the opposite? If I gave you a game where you had to hug all the time, are you finding yourself walking out into the world looking for more hugs perpetually? And what's interesting about that situation is after I created the game, a number of researchers who are in, um, who are examining autism had questions about whether or not they could turn this game into some kind of clinical treatment, some kind of clinical tool to help people feel more comfortable with human-to-human uh, -human interaction um, and affection. And I, I kind of stepped back and said, that's, that's, I've designed something. I encourage you to use it as you would like to use it, but I don't want to make those claims because I'm ill-equipped to do so. Um, I think the challenge is that we have, we have to sort of speak out of both ends on this one. Um, and I think it's particularly important if we look at the embodied affection and love because there are only so many people who are willing to put the kiss controller on their mouth and kiss someone in order to control a um, virtual bowling ball in that experience. And I think the challenge there is, of course, that as we are social distancing, some of these love and affection games are going to feel more awkward and it's going to take us a while to get that intimacy. But at the other end, I think that we need some of that intimacy, that I think there's an opportunity here as we find ourselves doing more and more computer mediated experiences that we want to think more critically and accept the complexity of these interactions that are supposed to be about love and affection. I realised that we've talked a lot about what love and affection can bring to game design and to the field of games as a whole. And we haven't talked a lot about what playfulness can bring to love and affection. Certainly. So um, I, a lot of, again, first book, Social Impact Games and Play was largely focused on this notion of all the propensity for play, how effective play is, how engaging play is. And I think that one of the things that's important to recognize is that if we add playfulness to love and affection, we may help people explore themselves. We may actually help people understand their themselves better. Uh, because one of the arguments that I routinely make in, in my publications around play is that play is a space for experimentation. And so affording people the opportunity to experiment with something like love and affection really is beneficial to their own maturity. So I love this idea of more play spaces in love and affection. And I also, we hinted at this a little bit earlier, but I also think there's an opportunity there to encourage people 
to play in a safe space because it's one of the other reasons that we talk about play as a, a, a wonderful maturing experience um, and a nice uh, environment to explore is that it is a safe space. So uh, in some of my early publications in Affection Games, I talked about the lack of diversity in this domain. Um, not only is it extremely heteronormative, it's also not representative of the various races, identities that we have in the world. And so I think that if we get better at doing these games, we're going to provide an environment for people to explore that is much healthier. I have an old game called Stolen Kisses that explicitly emphasizes that. Uh, and it simply offers a kissing game based on the standard mechanics of pressing your lips to a screen, but it does it with characters, non-player characters, that you get to choose. And they are far more diverse than most of the games we see. So giving people that space to play this way, I think, is essential to um, recognizing the propensities of play, love, and affection. Is there anything else that you want to add before we wrap up? Uh, I don't think so, except that it would be great if people did more research in this domain, um, looked more critically at all the ways we are trying to make human interactions playful and non-player character interactions playful in the domain of love and affection. Um, one of the things I think I often say uh, when I've given, say, the GDC talk on this topic is that I think we should be looking more at um, balancing the equation between all of the sort of uh, war reenactment we do and actually look at love reenactment. Are we going to make love, not war? <laughs> so yeah, instead of make love, not war, it should perhaps be um, make love games, not war games. That's great. Thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Keywords in Play. For more great ideas around games, check out criticaldistance.com or take a dive into the Digra archives at digra.com.